0: We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air, I'm Don Marsh. For some 35 years, Claire McCaskill has been a public servant on the local, state, and national levels. She was a tough prosecutor in Kansas City, a productive state legislator, an effective Missouri state auditor, and a respected U.S. senator. In a few days, it will be ex-Senator Claire McCaskill following her election loss to Josh Hawley. The Republican attorney general defeated Democrat McCaskill in November. In recent days, Claire McCaskill has been conducting a series of exit interviews Today, it's our turn. Joining me for this discussion with Senator McCaskill is my colleague, St. Louis Public Radio political reporter, Joe Maness. Senator and Joe, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me, Don. It's great to be here.
0: Senator, I have to think, after all your years of service, and despite uh, what I'm sure was a, a stinging election loss, there's got to be some relief that you're leaving that Washington environment.
1: Well, yeah, it's pretty toxic, and it's very dysfunctional right now. So um, I am cheerful about uh, this next chapter. Uh, I, I'm very competitive, right? I think everybody kind of figured that out. And I hate to lose. And I um, – so, yeah, I, l- losing sucks. And it, <laughs> I didn't like losing. But having said that, um, I am like a kid in a candy store with what's next – and the fact that I'm not gonna be over-scheduled. And when I kissed my husband uh, goodbye for my last journey to Mm -hmm. DC for the week, um, it's, we're used to the, I'm used to the Monday morning commute and coming home on Thursday nights and doing that every week and then having weekends very scheduled because you gotta get around the state and it's a big state. Mm -hmm. So this notion that I'm gonna have the ability to control my own schedule is uh, frankly something I haven't had in decades, and I'm very excited about that.
0: If you had been an ex-senator a couple of weeks ago, would you have signed that letter that 44 ex-senators signed, basically saying that we're facing a crisis?
1: If they'd amped it up a little, maybe. Right. I thought it was a little too <laughs> soft. Um, I would have asked them to put a little more punch in it and, stated the, and state the obvious. Would, that,
0: w- w- what would your addition have been? Well,
1: my addition would have been that the norms are being so distorted that there's too many Americans that think it's just hunky-dory for the president to get up every day and lie, and then lie again, and then lie again, and then before he goes to bed at night, lie again, and then tweet a lie in the morning. I mean, the lying is unprecedented. I mean, not that people have moments where they misstate facts or uh, even purposely leave things out or lie every once in a while about mm-hmm. something. But this is really startling that this president um, thinks it's OK. And I, I was just a little—but I guess to get a bipartisan letter, they had to kind of shave the edges off. Uh, but I was glad they did it. I was glad that so many of them spoke up. Um, I was disappointed that Kit wasn't on the letter. But, yeah. but I mean—
2: does Some people would say, well, the letter is a little too little too late, and that many of these uh, ex-senators who'd signed him hadn't been saying anything for two years. Um, There's some notable uh, names on that list that hadn't been saying much. Why do you think, A, everyone, many in Washington, in both parties, but especially the Republicans, seem to be sort of uh, intimidated by uh, Trump, and B, uh he, has, he really is kind of a Teflon president. A lot of this stuff doesn't stick to him. I, I think it's more dramatic than with Reagan uh, 30 years ago. People used to talk about Reagan being a Teflon president. But this is like to new heights. I'm interested in kind of why you think that, I mean, in, in Missouri, it was definitely a majority, 53%, um, who... Approve of him. Yeah, well, or yes, whatever he does is okay. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I don't think it's whatever he does is okay. Um, I think there's two things going on. The first is the political reality that he owns the Republican Party. I mean, we we can gnash our teeth and we can pound the podium about what he's done wrong and the mistakes he's made and his failings and his propensity to lie, but at the end of the day... He controls the Republican Party. The base of the Republican Party remains very enthusiastic about him. And we could spend all hour talking about why that is. Um, So if you're a a Republican in Washington, uh, look around my colleagues. The only ones who spoke out strongly against some of the things he said and done uh, found themselves in a position they couldn't win re-election and retired. So what lesson is that to all the other Republicans? That is, keep your head down. Uh, block what some of the the worst instincts he has by not doing what he wants you to do, um, and and this will pass. But if you speak out, then you get a primary, and you are in trouble in a primary. I mean, look at look at my election. Josh Hawley wouldn't let a sliver of daylight between him and Donald Trump. He jumped on Donald Trump's back. He wrapped his arms around his neck, and he said, "Carry me across the finish line." And Donald Trump did. And so it it is politically in their interest to not confront him. Now, I think people out there have fairly can say, well, Claire, you haven't been saying what you've said today all through the last two years. The other reason that people aren't is because you want to get things done. I had to make up my mind at the beginning of the Trump presidency. Do I want to still be effective as a senator? Or do I want to be bombastic and, you know, call him out, which I You know, part of my personality loves that part, right? But I knew if I wanted to get things done, I needed to not indulge in the glazed donut of, oh, gosh, Donald Trump is terrible. I needed to go back to the kale salad and keep my mouth shut and try to accomplish things. Because if I had been in the other category, I don't think I would have gotten as much across the finish line. I got a lot done in the last two years. So that's why I was disciplined about not engaging in some of the heated rhetoric about Donald Trump. Now I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to get legislation across the finish line or whether I can get Republicans to go on bills with me. Now I can um, kind of let loose and – this mouth, which has gotten me in trouble with some regularity for the last 35 years, I have a feeling it'll take me to new heights now. I think I can get in a lot more trouble. The public
0: perception, however, is that nothing is getting done, that there's gridlock in Washington and that you know some of the major issues that are out there are just sitting there with nothing, happen- nothing
1: happening. Well, we have gotten some things done, but um, there's two parts to this question also. First is, I think we need to be honest about how media has changed. Over the last decade. Um, When I went to Washington, I think there were eight post dispatch reporters in Washington.
2: Seven or eight. Yes.
1: And they all had different assignments. Some of them were investigative reporters. Some of them covered the House. Some of them covered the Senate. Some of them covered uh, the White House. Some of them covered other departments. Um, Now there's one guy. He does not have the bandwidth to do the work he needs to do. And so what the tendency is of media now is to cover only those things that make you angry or frightened. No one is interested in knowing that I passed legislation to bring down the price of hearing aids. Now, Missourians are going to be excited about that, because this is something that really impacts them, Mm -hmm. because hearing aids aren't covered on Medicare. But you've got Payoffs to porn stars, and you think a boring hearing on contracting at the Pentagon is going to ever break through in this environment? So, people are not hearing about how the Senate still functions. And the big stuff is not getting done because we have not enough people in the middle that are willing to compromise. We have way too many people who are engaging what I would call pure politics. That is, you play to the pure ideological base of your party. And you're not willing to say, well, maybe we could give on that just a little bit to get something done. That's the problem for the big stuff. So it's a combination of the change in media and um, the atrophy of the middle.
0: The fact there are 17 active investigations against, against the president and his people. Uh, certainly attracts the media.
1: No question. I mean, this guy's taking up all the oxygen in the room. Mm -hmm. The chaos that emanates from the Oval Office is basically consuming everything in Washington. So the day-to-day operation of government, where there is still a lot of good people doing a lot of good work, is lost on the American public. And frankly, it's a little dangerous because that breeds cynicism. And the more cynical people are, the more likely they are to say, throw all the bums out. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that part of that was a part of my problem.
2: Well, okay. Um, But there are two big controversies right now. I mean, the question is whether or not it's going to be a shutdown on Friday. And the uh, Texas judge's ruling Friday night, uh, he ruled to toss out the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. So, I mean, in, in your limited time left, Do you think, is there anything that this Congress that you're still a member of is going to be able to do on either one of those things? Are we going to be in a situation where there's going to be a shutdown till the new Congress convenes? I'm just, and are nothing done on the ACA?
1: You know, I could predict if it weren't um, this particular president, nothing's going to happen on the ACA. I mean, mean, the Republicans don't have a replace. Does anybody did anybody keep track of how many times they campaigned, repeal and replace, repeal and replace? So more
0: than sixty, I believe. Yeah. yeah.
1: And and so they, 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 they voted to repeal it that many times, mm-hmm. but they never had a replace and then they've been in charge of government now for two years, every part of it, and they can't figure out a replace. And now they're saying um some of them say they want to protect pre existing conditions. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with doing that in isolation because once you do that. If nobody has to buy insurance, then people who have pre-existing conditions are going to be priced out of the market. So it's it's complicated. It's intertwined. Um, I, I think it's going to, I think, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that there were republics in Washington that went, oh, no, when that case came down. Because uh, they, you know, as you noticed, we tried to bring it up, but they tried to act like, what, what, problem with health care? Uh, We didn't handle it. And now, um, you know, people are going to have to step up if this case, you know, and maybe it won't be maybe it'll be overturned on appeal and that's uh, what everybody's hoping well in
2: the in the fifth circuit but but yeah. do you think i mean schumer's talking about doing some sort of vote maybe well he wants to week. do a
1: vote for political purposes right. he wants to get everybody on the record as to whether or not they agree with this decision so he's going to push to try to get a vote i'm sure he's going to try to leverage uh if he can to get a vote to put everybody on the record whether they agree Because basically what we'd be saying is, should we join the lawsuit to fight on appeal to show what our legislative intent was? Because the court basically said Congress didn't intend for the law to remain once they took away the penalty for not buying insurance. So he wants us to try to demonstrate to the court, to the appellate court, what the legislative intent was by a vote. Um, It's smart. I don't know that it will have an impact on the court. I certainly don't think Mitch McConnell will ever let it happen.
0: But this could get to the Supreme Court. It, what it could? Then?
1: <laughs> well, that'll be very interesting to see. Yeah. Um, you know, they did hang their hat on uh, the tax, the penalty, which they called a tax for not buying to uphold the mandate in the first place. Well, now that's obviously gone due to the Republican tax bill that was passed without a mm-hmm. single. Democratic vote in the Senate. And um, they've got a they've got a mess on their hands with health care. The Republicans do. Um, uh, uh, Josh Hawley was very confident during the campaign that there would not be a problem with pre-existing conditions. Mm. I bet his stomach hurts today mm. because I don't think it, it is— a foregone conclusion that that protection is going to remain in place.
0: Joe also asked about the government shutdown, the potential for that and the prospect for that.
1: I can't tell. Um, He owns it, obviously. The president now has taken ownership of it. Um, There is a certain irony that many of the people that would need to carry out border security will be asked to work without pay. Um, And I think it takes a lot of nerve for him to get on an airplane and go to Mar-a-Lago on Friday While he sends people home from their jobs without pay. Um, I think that's a tough thing to do. So we may end up with a CR. Um,
0: Continuing resolution. Yeah, continuing
1: resolution. And and by the way, we passed money for a lot of the budget. Like defense is already done, so that's not a problem. Um, There really is, you know, it's about half of, fewer than that really, of of the government employees that would be impacted by this. Uh, so I think the Republicans are thinking, "Oh, it's not the end of the world if we have a furlough." Uh, but the problem is, he's not going to get what he wants after the first of the year either. He's better off to compromise now. And you know, the amount of money we put in the budget for for border security was exactly what they originally asked for. So this notion that all of a sudden he's just made up this five billion that he wants five billion. Uh, there's no magic in that number. We gave them what they asked for. Which is
2: the 1.6? Yes,
1: yes. So he he got exactly what his administration requested in the initial budget. And for him to shut down the government after we've given them what they asked for, I think that politically is really hard for him.
2: Well, so if you're an average Missourian who's not a junkie like Don and like I. Like all is, of us. And, yeah. yeah. And they're kind of seeing all this and thinking, well, especially if they don't get health care through their job, well, what's going to happen to my health care? Uh, what's going to happen? I mean, with my if if he's a farmer, he or she's a farmer. Uh, the soybean prices are you know through the floor uh, because of the tariff stuff. I mean, what's what's the climate going going to be for the next few months?
1: Well, I, for the next few months, for the next few weeks, it's going to be uncertain as to whether or not. Uh, certain functions of, of, of government will be fully staffed, and um, I, I think it will be very difficult once the Congress reconvenes in January for them to continue with an indefinite shutdown with the reality that the American people have sent a much different House of Representatives to take over in January. I mean, 40 seats flipped. That's a lot. Um, uh, that was a pretty clear indication. Um, and. Even in Missouri, Um, I won in Wagner's congressional district by almost three points. So there is a real change in a lot of the suburbs in America about their view of who should be in charge. And I think uh, we will see a different—it's going to be obviously a stalemate unless the president really does want to negotiate. But he's hard to negotiate with because he changes his mind, like, between— breakfast and lunch. He'll say one thing, and then he'll say something completely different. So I know my Republican colleagues are very frustrated about this president because you can't rely on what he tells you in terms of negotiation. He has undercut the Republicans in Congress almost as frequently as as he has had um, a Diet Coke brought to his desk.
0: I'd like to pick up on that point, but we have to take a break. Sure. Let's, let's do that. Now we're talking with Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri, and uh, we'll continue that conversation. I'm joined by Joe Manis here at the table in the studio, and we will pursue our questions in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. and welcome back as we continue our conversation with Senator Claire McCaskill I'm joined by Joe Manison asking the questions and just uh, so that everyone knows what's happening this interview was recorded yesterday 24 hours ago so it is uh, not old news yet but um, it is 24 hours old uh, senator uh, I, I saw an article that uh, an interview you gave with the new yorker magazine and in that article you said that uh, you would like to be able to say what republicans are saying quietly in the halls of, uh, of, of Congress. Without naming any names, what are
1: they saying? Well, they're very candid about how... Um, I mean, th- th- this president is not respected by his Republican colleagues in the but Senate. Why, why don't they stand up? Why they can't, because then they're the in political trouble. Yeah, they're in political trouble. But behind the scenes, they are... I think the thing that is most striking, that is said most often, is how startling it is to be in a meeting with him on a subject matter and realize he has no idea about the substance of the subject matter. I mean, this is a marketer. This is not a a guy, I mean, I am, you know, a, a proud policy wonk. I love the weeds. I want to get in there and figure out the complexities of what's going on and whatever subject matter is at hand in terms of public policy. This is not who he is. He is somebody who doesn't read a lot, isn't intellectually curious. He just sees how do I brand myself in a way that I can win and continue winning. So if you've made public policy kind of your work and you go into a meeting with the President of the United States and he clearly does not have a grasp, of the basics of an issue. It, it is unsettling, to say the least.
0: Are women going to make a difference in this uh, next legislative session? There are 100 women now in, uh, on Capitol Hill.
1: Well, certainly, I think more women coming to Capitol Hill have been has been a good thing. Um, I, I hesitate for us to get too carried away that gender is going to be the end-all, cure-all of everything. Um, you know, one of my friends said to me over the weekend, well, Nancy Pelosi looks like she's going to make it. And I said, yeah. And he said, she, says, well, yeah, she really reminds me of the good old boys of yesterday, how she can twist arms and hold on to power longer than uh, many in America think she should. Now, that's good skills. It's using her power effectively. Um, but, you know, she could give Tip O'Neill a run for his money in terms of how she's maneuvering Her stay, uh, even though she had many, many elections where the results were not good when she was the leader. Um, So I'm not sure that it's going to cure every ill. I think the place would run. um, I'll tell you one thing that would change in the Senate if a woman was in charge. We wouldn't let people take a half an hour to vote for a 15 minute vote. You know, I mean, this notion that you're supposed to vote within 15 minutes and we're still sitting there. 30 minutes because some guy has not or some woman has not shown up yet to vote. You know, you cut off the vote, and guess what? Everybody will get there on time. I mean, it's like telling your kids, if you don't do it again, you're going to get in trouble. Well, guess what? They're going to keep doing it until they get in trouble. And that's kind of like the inefficiencies of the place. I think that some of us who have had to do a lot of multitasking with motherhood and other jobs could maybe bring a little more discipline to the effort. But Um, by and large, I think um, a different perspective. I think more importantly than maybe all the women is how many young people have come to the House, how many people are there that are under the age of 35, uh, representing, I think, issues that are critical for our future. And I, I love it that those voices are going to be more prominent because you know, I've always made the joke in my speeches. People always ask why I wanted to go to the Senate. And I said, well, it was the only place in America I could be a hot young chick because everyone's <laughs> so old there. Um, um, and, um, you know, it, it is it is still. I mean, we have major committees being headed by people that are in their mid-80s mm-hmm. and in the Senate. And I... I think more youth is is good. I mean, that's one thing we can say for Josh. Josh is going to bring some youth.
2: Now, is that one of the reasons you made some crack a few days ago about the crazy uncles, you know, in the Senate? Is it because of the age or is it because maybe some people aren't all There anymore, and I can say that being in my sixties. Okay, so I. Mm.
1: (laughs) I No, I, I I really was not referring to individuals when I did that. I used that quote from an author that every family has has to have a crazy uncle because my speech, the theme of it was family. I was using that as an analogy that the Senate is a family, and we have embarrassing stuff too. I wasn't really speaking as to individuals. We have embarrassing things that are going on, like we're on the precipice of shutting down the government. I mean, that's embarrassing. I mean, we ought to be able to do our job better than this. We ought to be more functional. We, we've gotten to the point that too many things are decided behind closed doors. Power has gotten concentrated into too few hands. Uh, that's embarrassing. Um, so I was really just talking about that the day-to-day operation of the Senate uh, needs dramatic improvement, and it is embarrassing. Um, well, I, I thought the, the whole way the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation came down. Uh, was a spectacle. And, uh, you know, it, I think it could have been prevented for it have to, gotten, to, to have gotten as bad as it did.
2: Now, one of the things that some of the Republican critics have been contending before the election, but especially after the election, saying you might have done better if you'd backed Kavanaugh. Now, I want to this by precede this by saying I don't think that's true uh, for Democrats. I think it p- could put them in worse shape. Uh, you just have to look at some Democrats... Senate candidates in some states who tried to do that, and it didn't really help them. So, but my question is, in some ways, I think it kind of encapsulated the uh, sharp differences uh, between A, Trump supporters and other people, but also kind of the divide, the strong divide between you know rural and ur- uh, urban, suburban, that whole thing. Looking at the Kavanaugh thing, you held off till near the end, and actually some progressives were upset about that before you said much. Uh, Is there things that you wish you'd done differently with that, or would it have made really any difference in your race?
1: Well, I I don't think, um, first of all, I think I certainly knew, just like when I voted for the health care bill, I knew when I voted against Kavanaugh that it could cost me the election. But why do you have those jobs, right? Mm. You don't have the jobs to hold on to them. You have the job because you want to vote in a way that you can look yourself in the mirror. Uh, I I knew I might lose the election if I voted against Kavanaugh. I was willing to pay that price. I was willing to pay that price because I wasn't going to walk around the rest of my life saying, oh, gosh, Claire, you know, who are you really? So um, first and foremost, it wouldn't have made any difference, I don't think, either, in the election results. Here's what the Kavanaugh thing did. It wasn't so much how I voted. It was before the Kavanaugh spectacle of the hearing. We were running a 10 to 15 point advantage in enthusiasm in this election. So when you ask people on polling, are you motivated to vote? Our side was very motivated. And in fact, they did in record numbers. Uh, Lacey Clay didn't look at the numbers when he said the things he said. I did. Uh, I got 8,000 more votes in Lacey Clay's congressional district than he did. I mean, I, I did much better than Lacey did in his own district. We, we did really, really record-setting numbers in the parts of this state that are more blue. But what happened is their enthusiasm jumped between 10 and 15 points within one week on the other side because of Kavanaugh. So it just got all the, the, the people who are Republicans and who were Trump supporters, it got them back in the game. They became very motivated, and that's why you saw the margins you saw in some of the rural areas, was, beca- was because it went back to uh, more Trumpian results, even though I did better than Hillary Clinton in every county in the state. It still was uh, enough that it, it created the margin that that Holly enjoyed. What and is
2: it about Kavanaugh? Was it the abortion issue, which no, I it, it, I believe was no, kind it was, of underlying? It, but was, it was something else. It
1: was the sense that the Democrats had high, had kneecapped this guy at the eleventh hour, and that uh, this this was a a, a setup deal. Um, why didn't this come out earlier? Uh, it was really mishandled. Um, when the letter came into the Judiciary Committee, they should have given it with the, the, with the directive that it had to be confidential, but it should have been given to the majority. And to the FBI with the understanding that the person who wrote the letter wanted to be confidential. And then they couldn't say at the 11th hour, oh, look, they just had this. They went out and created this just to try to kneecap this guy at the end. And then all of the hoopla around it and all of the shouting and the it just it just it, it became very emotional. And when people get emotional about something, they vote. We were already emotional. But they got emotional over what they perceived was a terrible, unfair process to Judge Kavanaugh.
0: Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine, said uh, yesterday that she felt that uh, Kavanaugh's vote on Planned Parenthood justified her vote for him. Uh, Do you think there is any possibility, any potential, that Kavanaugh might be like an Earl Warren and and suddenly be a little bit, uh, have a different stripe once he's on the court?
1: Well, you know, you... You never know. It's a lifetime appointment. Um, and I, I hope Susan's right. But it was, it, it's a huge risk, because this is somebody who has spent his entire life preparing for this through the Federalist Society. And for anybody who doesn't know what the Federalist Society is, it is the grooming ground for socially conservative judges in this country. They are the ones who produce the list of Supreme Court nominees for the president. Uh, that is who he is picking from, that list he released, uh, which was a really smart thing for him to do in the campaign, because it got a lot of skeptical people about Donald Trump to think, well, I'll rationalize voting for this guy who's clearly not normal in terms of presidential, because he's going to produce Supreme Court judges that I want. And um, that, combined with their uh, dislike, intense dislike of Hillary Clinton, is what delivered almost a 20-point margin for him in Missouri. So
0: the short answer is likely not to be uh, much different
1: now that he's on the bench. It would be shocking if he was.
0: A quick question about that uh, confrontation between uh, President Trump, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer the other day. What did you make of that 17-minute episode?
1: What it shows is the president is not used to having people um, challenge him in front of the cameras. Uh, I I, I doubt he'll do that again. Um, They didn't want him to do it, and credit to them. They knew that it was a spectacle and kept saying we should be discussing this, not when the cameras are on. But he was so confident that he could win the hour by blustering his way through it. And, um, you know, Chuck and Nancy are not dumb people. They're smart people. And I think um, Chuck got out of that meeting what Chuck wanted out of that meeting, and that was the American people to understand who is actually playing the game of shutting down the government over a request that's really political, not substantive, since we're giving them the amount of money they asked for in the budget. So I think um, he, he's not used to that. When he typically does these things, he's surrounded by Republicans who stands silently in acquiescence, or he is at rallies where he is um, adored by thousands of people shouting his name and loving him. He doesn't have very many times that he's in a situation where people are really getting in his grill, especially on live TV. So I think, I I know his staff will do everything they can to avoid that happening again.
2: Now, I know you've said a couple times since the election that Trump's two visits like you know, the Thursday and the Monday uh, before the election that they may have played a crucial role because of the energy issue. Is there a particular thing that he preaches that really gets people going? I mean, as I mean, because this is something that's going to be affecting elections going forward. I mean, this is something that Democrats are going to have to be dealing with and Republicans. I mean, as far as what turns on the on the button that really gets, um, the Republican base energized.
1: Well, I, I, I think, um, Mitch McConnell looked at the map and realized that Heidi had a really good opponent in, uh, up in North Dakota. And she, um, was in a state that it was even more red than Indiana or Missouri. Uh, and, and then the third one was Florida. So I think Mitch McConnell told him, if we can win, Missouri and Indiana will hold the majority. And they decided that they would camp out in those two states. And him being present. I mean, everybody has to understand it's not the people in the arena that make the difference. It's the coverage that gets. I mean, it consumes the coverage. Um, you know, for 24 hours before and 24 hours after. It's all about Donald Trump and his rally. And I don't care if it's in Springfield or it's in Cape Girardeau or if it's in Kansas City, it covers statewide like a blanket. So it is all about him telling the people who voted for him he really needs them to show up. And they did.
2: Now, one of the things... I did a survey a couple of weeks ago looking at the Center for Responsive Politics, the Nonpartisan Group's Final Numbers on Outside Spending and you had more negative ads and money spent against you than any Senate candidate in the country. I mean, uh, no, Nels- I'm so
1: proud. Nelson-, <laughs> Nelson was
2: number two and Donnelly in Indiana was number three. And of course, what's the common thread between those three top, uh, targets of dark money, so to speak, you lost. Um, so, I mean, what, what does that say, and do you think there's going to be any effort to change it, or if there's not? and i I don't think there is going to be any really serious effort. What's that mean going forward? I mean, because many people don't know will never know who ran some of the ads attacking your family. or I mean, and this is true of anybody. they they won't know who some of the ads were that attacked Josh Hawley as right. well.
1: right? Well, uh, I think the people of this country are ready to change Citizens United, and I think it will happen. I'm confident it will happen. The question is, how long will it take? This is really the first cycle that it was so dominant, the outside money, um, especially on the Republican side. I mean, Josh Hawley really didn't raise much money. Um, he raised the amount of money. Um, he raised less than the amount of money that I raised, um, you know, in 2006. Yeah, he
2: raised $11.7 million and you raised just under $40 million, which is a record for the state.
1: Correct. And, um, and by the way, all that's disclosable. All that $40 million, you can see who gave it. Um, so the vast majority of his money was dark money. And the question is, do we need to do initiative, uh, initiative a constitutional amendment? Um, and I think that's what will happen. I think we'll have a movement in this country. It will pass overwhelmingly if we can just begin it. And I think if we can take the Senate back in 20, you will see an effort to begin a constitutional amendment to change citizenship. United. Let,
0: let, let me stop right there, Joe. We have to take another break, but we'll go right back to you when, uh, when we continue. We're talking with Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri. We'll continue that conversation momentarily. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as my colleague Joe Manis and I continue our conversation with Senator Claire McCaskill. Joe, you were poised with a question when he had to take that break. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, because I get whipped up when it comes to campaign finance. Um, <laughs> so of, of, of the ads, most of the ads that ran against you were saying basically that you were too rich, too liberal, been in Washington too long. Some of them resurrected the old thing about the plane. Although, I mean, to be fair, I mean, Holly was taking rides on a donated plane from someone who had a very similar model to yours. But uh, I'm not justifying it, just laying it out there. But which ads, of the, of the ads that ran, which ones do you think did you the most harm?
1: I don't think the ads that tried to intimate that I was corrupt um, what were effective against gettable voters. I think it may have, uh, for the haters out there that were never going to vote for me, it gave them, you know, put a smile on their face. But I don't think, I hope, anyway, most Missourians would know better that I have never and would never use my position in office to ever assist my family one bit. That, those were the most hurtful because it was so painful for my family. Uh, to see those kinds of allegations um, over and over again on television. I think the thing that was most effective, frankly, and if you noticed, he said it about every 10 minutes, especially the last month of the campaign. I will give him credit. He became very disciplined the last three months. He didn't talk about the things he talked about near the beginning of the campaign. I think his advisors really drilled into him, this is all you need to say, and we'll bring this thing home. And the one thing he said over and over again was how long I've been in office. Mm -hmm. Um, I I made the joke, you may have heard me, uh, about, you know, if you're getting wheeled into the operating room and the nurse leans down and says, I've got really good news for you. Mm-hmm. This is the first time this surgeon has ever done this. And you'd go, holy yeah. cow, back up the gurney, right? <laughs> but in government now, if you're experienced and you really know what you're doing – People don't see that as you being able to be more effective. They see that as a huge negative. Right. And I think the years of experience I had, I think Roy Blunt had the same problem. Um, I think if it hadn't been a big Republican year, uh, it would have been hard for Roy, because Roy's been at this longer than I have. Um, I think a, a lot of experience is a huge negative right now. And if you combine that with Oh, she's rich. She's rich. It's like, oh well, she's done this long enough, and she'll be fine. I mean, she's rich, and I think that played in the minds of those late those voters who don't see through a political party prism in Missouri, and there's a bunch of them. I got a bunch of them, but I just didn't get enough to win. What
0: do you what do you make of the uh, investigation called for by Jay Ashcroft, and now Nicole Galloway is in on it of Josh Hawley? And his use of uh, campaign funds, some campaign funds for personal purposes.
1: Well, here's what he did, just to be clear. He brought in political consultants after on his election night in 2016 saying, no more political consultants in Jefferson City. He brought in political consultants into his office within a week of taking office. They were in his official office. They were in meetings with paid government employees. They were directing agendas as it related to paid government employees they were emailing paid government employees about things that needed to be done to the extent that some of the state employees were wondering if they were in fact their bosses mm. that is mixing political with official mm. now there you know he's trying to muddy this up by saying well, you know, you can use your campaign funds to do things to help you with your office. Like, for example, if you want to travel to Washington for a meeting, you can use your campaign funds to do that. That's not the same as what he did. What he did was use political operatives inside the government. I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, Bill Webster went to prison for using the printer to print political stuff much less having political operatives actually trying to dictate what his work was going to be as the Attorney General of of Missouri. so I do think it's a problem I, I, I am I would hope that law enforcement would be investigating this not just uh, Jay Ashcroft under a statute where he has limited authority. I'm glad if I, I, whatever extent Nicole joins in I do think her subpoena power would be helpful. Uh, because there are clearly documents there, or the Kansas City Star wouldn't have had the story. What's
0: the potential then for this? How uh, far I, can it go?
1: I don't know. I don't know. But um, I know this can't be okay.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, think about it. What they're really saying is, you. I mean, I won't even let my political people come in my office, physically be in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm going to have a meeting having to do with how I appear politically or what I need to do to promote myself politically, I do it off-site. I would never dream of bringing them in the office and having them email my staff. It's crazy. And the fact that he thought it was okay, I, uh, to me, just shows a real lack of judgment.
0: Is prison a potential? I, mean, I have no would, idea. It worked for Webster, or against Webster. I have no
2: job. idea. Well, Webster was complicated by yep. some other yep. issues that he didn't plead guilty to, but it was—
1: yeah, that was a plea bargain, right? Exactly kind of situation. I mean, yeah, I want to make that clear. You know, it was a little. It different. was. It's a definitely more complicated.
2: Yeah, but in in the case of the Holly situation, a bunch of this stuff came out about ten days to two weeks before the election. You look at the election results; it really didn't have. I mean, he he won by almost six points. Right. So many of his supporters, uh, I mean, this was all over the news. Did not see this as a big issue. Um, Why do you think that is? I mean, if if he ever comes on, I'm going to ask him a similar question. Um, But why do you think that is? I mean, because it didn't resonate. It really did not resonate. Here's what he's going to
1: say. He's going to say, well, it was just political. That's why it didn't resonate. It was near the end of the campaign. Um, It's a little bit like the Kavanaugh second confirmation hearing. It was near the end, and it was a political effort to—that's what the Republicans think. It was a political effort to stop him. Um, I think any time anything like that comes out near the end of a campaign, it is a very limited value. People are worn out. They're tired of the TV ads. They're tired of the back and forth. They're not sure what to believe. They're not sure who to believe. So a, a, a newspaper article, as damning as some of those articles were, both in the New York Times and the Kansas City Star, the timing of them was such that it was going to be a very limited value. And that would be true if, if Lord— Hope this would not happen that there would be those kinds of articles about me, but I think anybody who gets really seriously bad press in the last couple of weeks of an election uh, doesn't really have to worry about it because people are, are are kind of like, okay, I'm done with this. Let's get this over and vote. Well, what
2: what what do Democrats do in Missouri and some other states where okay, overall the most of the polls show that the Trump's approval rating was right around 53 the day of the election which was going to be bad news for you or anybody else. I mean, Galloway barely won, and that was against an opponent who had no money, no support.
1: Well, wait a minute. Her opponent was a train wreck. Are you kidding? I know, but my I mean, point is she, she barely won. My point her. is that
2: she barely, <laughs> barely won, won right. even right. with all that. Right. So... If you look at that 53%, though, that really belies what really was going on because you got in the urban and suburban areas where the president's approval rating is way low, I mean, maybe 30, 35. And then in rural parts of not just Missouri but other states, it's like 70, Mm -hmm. 75. I mean, you know, your totals in some of these counties was under 30%. Why is there such a big uh, split and how do Democrats, I mean, how can they achieve any sort of repair, any of it?
1: Well, I do think the pendulum will swing back. I, I want to say Why? that. Well, because um, in Missouri, there are still a huge swath of voters that don't vote on political party. Um, and Trump is uh, a different cat when it comes to uh, the, the loyalty that people feel to him, because they really feel like they're giving the finger to the government with Trump. Um, they really, there's some, there's some frustration and anger at the government. People have worked really hard, um, and they're not going to do better than their parents, and they can't afford to retire. Their wages haven't really grown. Um, for a lot of working class voters in this country, and Missouri is no exception, th- th- Trump was very attractive because it felt like he got it felt like, hey, we're getting screwed here, and nobody is is saying it the way it needs to be said. So I don't think that Trump will have the success that he has promised these people he will have. We don't have real wage growth. We we have a deficit higher than ever. Uh, We have an economy that's very volatile right now, and I think potentially is going to have real bumps in the road in the coming months. I I just have been around this long enough. I mean, I remember when, in 2004, when a Republican governor was elected and defeated me and Republican majorities, uh, we thought, oh my god, all the obituaries of the Democratic Party were written in early part of 2005. Yeah. And in 2006, I defeated an incumbent Republican senator. Um, so things change, and they will. And I think our party has to realize we're not going to ever win by just talking about identity politics and cultural politics if we don't get stick to bread and butter economics, if we don't do a better job of addressing the anger and frustration feel people feel about them working so hard and it not being very much better or in fact worse in some ways than it was a decade ago in terms of their family's income.
2: Well I mean a lot of this I think stems back from the 1980s that's when these all these rural factories started closing that's when and and neither party really began addressing that I mean there was Federal policies that made an enticement for the little shoe factory here to close and this and that. Right. And, and that, I think, is really at the heart of what's going on in these. I grew up in rural Indiana. I've seen it. Right. These towns, I mean, that's why they're frustrated.
1: That's all true. And But here's the thing what Donald Trump did. He convinced them that it wasn't the microchip that was the problem. It was Mexicans. Hmm. And it's really technology that is, by and large, in globalism, that's by and large responsible for uh, a lot of the loss of manufacturing. And what's happening now under the tax bill, which we predicted, is because of the way the tax bill was written, it really is in the interest of these large manufacturing interests to do more automation by investing in more capital equipment. And so what they're doing is they're upgrading their technology, technology in terms of their equipment. And when you do that, you need less people. So instead of the tax bill creating a lot of jobs, what it's going to do, it's going to front load more increase in the kind of technology that you need less people for, where you can just have a couple of computer programmers and let the robots do their thing. And so we've got, I think, without question, the largest public policy problem facing this country for the next 10 to 20 years is what do we do with the workers that are displaced by technology? And that's what we haven't figured out.
0: Our time is beginning to wind down. I wanted to get to the national political picture for a moment. How well served is the party, do you think, by having, oh, 20, 25 people out there ready to run for president at this stage?
1: I'm not worried about it. Um, the thing about it is that we need an extraordinary candidate. And if you emerge out of that field, you're good at something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and probably pretty good at being inspirational. Uh, I don't think you should ever discount how much inspiration matters in a presidential race. Mm -hmm. I do think it, 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 and being able to convince people you can change things. Um, And I think in this particular election, character uh, is Mm going to be important as a contrast to what we have now. So I think, you know, there's a large field, no question. Um, I do think what I will be preaching as I... um, opine about the next presidential race is to make sure that we nominate someone who can win a state in the Midwest. Uh, That's really important. But is that possible? Yes. Of course it is. Of course it is. We can win Wisconsin. We can win Michigan. We can win, uh, you know, but we've got to worry about states like Ohio. I mean, that was a really good cycle for Republicans in Ohio with the exception of Sherrod Brown. Um, It, you know, Florida, we've got to win Florida So we've got to find candidates who inspire people but who also convince them that they can take on the pharmaceutical industry. They can take on some of these problems that um, are really impacting people's lives. And sometimes having a big field, it allows the one that is the shining star to emerge. And I think that will happen. At least I'm hoping it happens. (laughs) Only
0: a minute left. Uh, Yesterday, Meet the Press played this game, and they came up with Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders on the basis of their polling being the two top potential candidates at this point.
1: Yeah, well, at this point in uh, the last cycle in Iowa, uh, the number one candidate was Jeb Bush. How'd that work out? I mean,
2: can you really win with candidates we in their 70s. I mean, don't you need somebody mm-hmm. like Beto or whatever? I don't know. To really inspire people.
1: I don't know. Um it depends on whether people want an old comfortable pair of sh- slippers or they want a new bright and shining star. And a lot of that will depend on how the president behaves and how these investigations turn out in the next 6 to 9 months. I think the the last chapter on President Trump is far from written in terms of what's going to happen in this presidency.
0: Claire McCaskill, we have to end it right there. We want to thank you so much for being with us and wish you the best of luck as you turn the page, which gets turned in just a couple of days now. But thank you for being with
1: us. It was, it's my pleasure. I I, I I love sitting at this desk, and I hope you guys will have me back even when, I'm, uh, when, I, when I don't have to get on an airplane and go to Washington. We'll
0: certainly do that. Joe <laughs> Mattis, thank you also for being with us. Well, thanks great, for asking me. Great to see you both.